You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 83. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, As I said last week on today's show, today's show is going to be a solo show, and I'm going to debunk one of the biggest lies about Bitcoin. But first, let's look at some of the news that's closer to home for me. Uh, Foursquare, the location technology company where I've worked since 2011, I said that a bunch of times, minus a brief hiatus recently, but I'm back there. Uh, Foursquare has gotten a lot of good press recently. A big write-up in the New York Magazine has prompted a, a, a whole lot of responses. Most of it has been positive, but Every once in a while, you see negative things out there. Some are fair, uh, but some are so ridiculous. It's like, what do I have a podcast for if I can't just you know respond to these things? So I'm going to talk about some of these things today. Uh, so the main article focuses on Foursquare as a location intelligence company. We have our core technology that creates apps with a good user experience. It's the Foursquare City Guide Swarm, but also a whole host of other apps that that use Foursquare's technology, Uber, Twitter, TouchTunes, all that stuff, etc. And the location data is aggregated for the purpose of advertising and for the purpose of analytics. Now, some people don't like their data used in that way. Fine. People can decline to give location permissions to any app. Uh, Your data as an individual, your location data as an individual is actually not very valuable uh, to Foursquare, to most companies. But uh, look, uh, seeing more relevant ads versus seeing rest, less relevant ads uh, is not the worst thing that can happen to you online. So, you know, I, I think I'm going to give the award for the dumbest hot take to this article in ThinkNum. I don't even think I want to link to it, but I guess I'm talking to it about it, so I'll link to it. It says, hey, Foursquare is a failure because the Foursquare brand page isn't getting a lot of Facebook likes these days. Oh, my God. Okay, I am just blown away by this hot take. Who the heck cares about Facebook likes? It has no bearing whatsoever on the success of the business or on the uh, on how good the product is. Foursquare doesn't seek Facebook. Foursquare doesn't seek Facebook likes. Absurd. How could that be your headline? I, I, I have no idea. It's just, it's just a lot of these websites that are putting out news articles. They just hire people. They just say, put out a lot, of, a lot of crap. Whatever pops into your head, just put it there. I mean, that's literally, I think, what's going on. In fact, there's an article on TechCrunch this week uh, about how Facebook is considering removing their like counts. I'll link to that on localmaxradio.com slash 83. Uh, interestingly, they don't say why. They don't say why Facebook is considering removing likes on on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, the speculation is that it's for our own well-being. If we see someone with more likes, then we feel bad. But I'm a little bit skeptical of that explanation, to say the least. Uh, I'm sure there are other explanations, too. Maybe they just have better things to uh, put on their um, – they just have – maybe it's cluttering – their their pages, their uh, you know their valuable app real estate uh, and website real estate that could be one of them, or maybe they think that they'll get better content if people aren't looking at likes. I don't know. Uh, so there's that, and then the most puzzling hot take for me comes from the CEO of Gab. Uh, used to be Gab.ai. I'm not sure if it's still Gab.ai. Now it's at Gab.com. This is from Andrew Torba. He is outraged, just completely outraged that. 
uh, Foursquare, that the company has a data business, is making money off of online data. And he uses very colorful language to express this. He says that people are stupid for giving us our data and partaking in the, quote, childish foolishness that is Foursquare. Well, excuse me. Foursquare helped me find the best sandwich of my life. Foursquare helps me know cities like a local when I travel abroad. And Foursquare Swarm, that helps me remember my past. Gab, (laughs) Gab, on the other hand, helps me find my favorite alt-right frog Pepe memes. Which one is childish foolishness here? Sheesh. And he also called Foursquare a parasite, a, a quote, I quote this, a parasite of an app. Man. That is not the first time that I've been called a parasite on Gab. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that much. So look, uh, believe it or not, I do actually appreciate uh, some of what Gab is trying to do. They are experimenting with a maximally free speech social network, and I really do appreciate that. I've been very critical on, the, on this program about uh, the censor- censorship that we find on Facebook and YouTube and, and Twitter and, and all these places, but... I really get no use out of listening to neo-Nazis shouting all day, so I'm not very active on it. And to be fair, it's mostly, you know, most of the people on there are not that, but they're they're all over the place. There's also InfoWars, and there's some news with conspiracy theory headlines. But, you know, most of the content that I see on Gab just doesn't give much value. Um, it it doesn't even give me entertainment value. It's more like just entertainment value for the people posting it, I guess. And so it's just people giving empty talking points or propaganda headlines. Even if I want, you know, Trump MAGA memes, there are better places for that. And I think Gab should focus on improving their own user experience and also trying to figure out how as a centralized service they're going to keep their independence and their free speech leanings. So I'd have Andrew Torba on the local maximum, and he could say whatever I, he wants, but this outrage over Foursquare is uh, just not that well thought out. All right. So I promised I was going to take on one of the biggest lies about Bitcoin, and there's a few we could talk about. What is the biggest lie about Bitcoin? Uh, it's, <laughs> there's uh, a lot in the running here. Uh, one of the lies is it's going to get hacked and go to zero whatever, been hearing that for a decade. Uh, Another one that's way more interesting is that it's not backed by anything. That's actually a really interesting question economically. I wouldn't call it a lie per se. Um, It can never be a monetary system, people say. Uh, That's a good one to debate, but it's a way bigger question. And then another one I can think of that's a lie about Bitcoin is that it's primarily used for criminal activity. Uh, That's not true, but that's probably too easily uh, to debunk, I think. Uh, So no, the thing that I want to talk about is the idea that Bitcoin mining is consuming so much energy that it's going to somehow eat the world or destroy our environment. And this often comes in the form of what's called FUD in this area, fear, uncertainty, doubt that people kind of put out into the media when they want to put negative ideas in people's mind about a certain product or about cryptocurrencies, for example. So sort of like reverse PR that people put out there. It's actually why I like products that survive FUD, that survive bad PR, because it tells you that the value is real and it's not just someone hired to hype it up. In fact, it's the opposite. If someone's hired to hype it down and people still use it, then you know there's real value there. So here's an example. 
a headline I saw recently on Cointelegraph, which we may guess is a pro-crypto but, uh, uh, website, but reporting on statements that are anti-crypto, VMware CEO Gelsinger condemns Bitcoin as bad design, bad for humanity. <laughs> bad for humanity. Oh, my God. So first, uh, poorly designed. It's worked for 10 years now, people. This is not 2012. This is not 2013. Gelsinger also claimed that people primarily use Bitcoin for illicit activities. Yeah, there's that again. And that overall, it's bad for humanity. Gelsinger reportedly remains neutral on blockchain technology itself. (laughs) Yeah, does he really understand it? Uh, Instead of viewing Bitcoin as an unfortunate misuse of that tech. Bitcoin is the main use of that tech, you know, he would know. And of course, the rebuttal is written here too, because it's on a pro-crypto website. But keep listening, because I want to add more uh, to this, because um, I don't think this is quite complete. The rebuttal in this article is this. Bitcoin's electricity demands have been a concern for energy-conscious persons in the past, as previously reported by Cointelegraph. Data consultant and blockchain specialist Alex DeVries has spoken about the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining. He said, we know that mining is done with coal electricity, but also with renewable energy. In the latter case, we don't know what we are displacing. Plus, renewable energy never has zero lifetime carbon footprint either. The more energy Bitcoin uses, the more it will impact the environment for sure. It's not helping us reach our climate goals. In a recent study this June, cryptocurrency research firm CoinShares estimated that 74.1% of Bitcoin mining is powered by renewable energy. So they have that 74.1% number. I don't know how they get that, and I don't know if the other 25% is a concern, but all right. Now, look, the argument over how much energy Bitcoin actually uses and what percentage of that is renewable is really tough to get at with the data. I'm sure they're trying hard, but the average person isn't going to be well-equipped to evaluate this. So I want to present today a new argument to you that approaches this differently because we can, without even making a whole lot of assumptions, put a cap on the maximum amount of electricity and resources that will be put to mining Bitcoin. I could put an absolute mathematical cap on it today, and therefore we won't have to worry anymore in the future. So I think of it this way. Bitcoin miners are primarily in it for the money, right? Even if they believe in the system, the big people who are out there mining Bitcoin to win the rewards from the network uh, are not there so that they can lose tons of money. Um, It costs a lot of money to do it to begin with. So for every Bitcoin that is rewarded to miners, and remember right now, uh, until next year, that's 12 and a half Bitcoin are rewarded every block, every 10 minutes to miners, that's 12 and a half Bitcoin. How many resources are they going to spend to win that award? And the answer, well, uh, to win a Bitcoin, you're not going to spend more than the price of Bitcoin itself. It's as obvious as saying that I'm not going to bid more than $100 for a $100 bill. In fact, I'll bid less because I'm not going to bother bidding $100 on it. That's just a waste of time and energy. And this includes, you know, all the miners who win plus all the miners who lose because a lot of people mine and they don't like every block somebody wins the award and everybody else loses because when you add their awards together that's the expected reward and as a system you're not going to want to spend more than that so for example to simplify this if there's a 50% chance that you'll win a bitcoin and a 50% chance that someone else will win a bitcoin then each player shouldn't spend more than half a bitcoin's worth otherwise they lose the value on average um They could spend less than that, 
they might. There's a question of how much less they'd be willing to spend, but they shouldn't spend more. That's clear because you don't want to have a negative expected value here. And the big players in Bitcoin mining, they don't have to worry about this so much. They know what their win rate is going to be. They're sharing pools. So win, lose, it's not really, you kind of know the rate at which you'll accrue Bitcoin from mining. So we don't have to get into the specifics, but I do know this. If there is a 12 and a half Bitcoin reward every 20 minutes, 10 minutes, then spending on that should on average be less than 12 and a half Bitcoin, whatever value that happens to be. So recently, for example, Bitcoin has been near $10,000, $10,000 a pop for a Bitcoin. So that would mean that no more than $125,000 should be spent on mining every 10 minutes. Um, Okay, so uh, that sounds like a lot before I dig into that, but let's see if that amount will actually be spent first before I say $125,000 every 10 minutes. What is that? Let's let's actually see if it really will be $125,000. So in reality, I would argue that far less than that reward will actually be spent to get the Bitcoin. So first... Because miners and businesses in general, they don't just want to break even. They actually want to turn a profit. So um, a lot of people, maybe the marginal person will spend 125000 but then they'll kind of, you know, they'll turn their mining equipment off. It's not worth it. They'll, they'll invest their money in some, some, someplace else. But other people who are very efficient are spending much, much less than that. And also... Keep in mind that this money isn't being spent in real time. So for a miner to win a Bitcoin reward, that took years and years of research and development, uh, capital investment. They need to buy the mining equipment. And of course, you know, what is the mining equipment? I don't think like a pickaxe or whatever happens in the gold mine or cold mines these days. I'm pretty sure they don't use pickaxes now, but I don't know how it works. Uh, But in cryptocurrency, mining is done by these specialized computers called ASICs that get hooked up to the Bitcoin network. And research is done to figure out, uh, if you're a miner, you do some research to kind of figure out which ASICs should I buy, when should I buy them, where should I connect them to the network so that I get the best return. Uh, You don't want to hook them up in a place where energy is very expensive, of course. You want to uh, hook them up in a place where the cost of electricity is going to be very low uh, because that's going to increase your margin. So, And you can place them anywhere in the world. So another issue that comes up is that you don't know what the price of Bitcoin is going to be in the future. So remember, the price of Bitcoin was $3,000 at the beginning of this year. Now it's $10,000. And at the end of 2017, it briefly hit $20,000. So huge range in price. Uh, Think about this question a little bit. If you were to invest in a Bitcoin mining business now and you think that it could produce, say, one Bitcoin a month on average in 2020. How much would you pay for it in dollars? Well, you would say it depends on the price of Bitcoin in 2020. I don't know how much Bitcoin's going to sell for in 2020. We don't know. So I bet in 2017, the miners made a killing because uh, what they made when Bitcoin hit 20,000 was uh, they made far more than they had anticipated Uh, the price of Bitcoin was going to be. They probably made far more they invested because they didn't expect the price to be that high. Uh, Now, if we're going to do something similar to what farmers do, is that uh, farmers, for example, don't know, uh, you know, it's a seasonal business. They have one growing season. They know how much 
they know how many crops they can produce, but they don't know what the price is going to be because the price fluctuates. So what they actually often do is they sell it before it's grown on a futures market. In other words, a speculator will come in and say, I'll pay you know, X dollars per pound of corn when you make it. And that takes some of the risk out of the farming. Obviously, there's a risk that the crop yield won't be as high, uh, but that's a different type of insurance. But this takes the price risk out of it. Uh, in Bitcoin, there really isn't a well-developed futures market yet. And I think that you know, largely the miners themselves are taking on that risk. So it'd be like the farmer just saying, ah, screw it, I'll do whatever the price is, I'll live with that. So uh, you know, think about it this way. If someone says, I have a mining business and it'll be profitable if Bitcoin stays at 10K, would you invest in it? Okay, sounds risky. You know, Bitcoin has to stay at 10K in 2020, but it sounds like he has a good shot of making a profit. But what if someone says, well, you know, in my plan, I'll only make money if Bitcoin reaches $50,000 next year. Uh, much riskier. Now, I know some people who are willing to bet that Bitcoin is at $50,000 next year. I know some venture capitalists along with some anonymous people on Reddit. Um, but of course, even people who would be willing to make that investment, they'll bet on the guy who has the 10K plan first. And before that, they'll bet on a guy who has a 5K plan and a 1K plan. I, all, all I need is for Bitcoin to stay over $1,000 and I will still make a profit. That's a very efficient miner. Invest in those first before you invest in the higher ones. So at some point, the risk involved in these businesses does take a toll on its investability. And so there's a maximum amount uh, investors are willing to pay to get all to to do all this mining and get all this mining equipment. So with all this risk, as well as the fact that it takes all this time and there's an interest rate to take into account, uh, the actual amount invested um, we in, in Bitcoin mining, we can conclude, which is kind of a proxy for the resources consumed uh, to, to mine these Bitcoins, resources consumed by the network, that's going to be way less than the amount of rewards given to miners at the end of the day. So that's the block reward, that's the 12 and a half. So now also another thing I want to point out is all those resources that are consumed is not energy. So a lot of it is human labor, uh, so, okay, energy consumption is even a smaller fraction of the total Bitcoin rewards. I'm just going to assume here that it's less, but I want you to understand that that's being very generous to the people that's saying Bitcoin uh, is going to cost too much energy, because not only should it be less, it should be way less than the block rewards. So here's the nice part. We know what the Bitcoin block rewards will be with pretty good certainty into the distant future. It's 12.5 every 10 minutes for now, right now. And every four years, the last one was in 2016, and the next one is next year in 2020. Every four years, that gets cut in half, an event called the halvening. So next year, after the halvening, there won't be 12 and a half Bitcoin every 10 minutes. There'll be six and a quarter new Bitcoin minted every 10 minutes. Great. So we know how many, and I think I saw somewhere that that is expected sometime in, in May, in May of next year, you have that reward cut in half of new production, and that's how much the network is essentially being paid. So we know how many Bitcoins are being given to these miners, but how much energy is going to be consumed and how many dollars are going to be spent, uh, that all depends on the price of Bitcoin. So then I want to ask this question, you know, what, well, if the price goes up, in Bitcoin, then uh, people are going to spend way more on mining. That could 
mean that the energy, the people are going to spend way more on energy. So here's an interesting question. It's a question a lot of people ask when they first get into Bitcoin, when they first invest in it. They ask, what is the highest possible price that Bitcoin can attain? And I looked it up, a, a reasonable estimate uh, for like a good order of magnitude on it. It turns out the first person, uh, no, sorry, the second person who, invest, who invested in Bitcoin uh, in the world asked this question. It wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, uh, the answer was actually calculated way back in the early days of Bitcoin by someone named Hal Finney. Uh, he's a cryptographer, and he was one of the original developers of Bitcoin. He worked directly, although remotely, from Satoshi Nakamoto, so it's probable he doesn't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. Um, and so he talked about this in an email. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away from ALS in 2014. But um, he calculated that if the entire world decided to adopt a global currency and everybody chose Bitcoin as that currency, hey, you can't get much better than that. Uh, you know, to hold all their money in Bitcoin, everyone in the world. That's, that's crazy. It's going to be far less than that. He calculated that it would then be worth around $10 million a pop. So in today's money, of course, $10 million. Of course, if, uh, you know, if the dollar goes through hyperinflation, people point out, well, it could be $100 million. But $10 million in today's money, so let's just, let's just put it like that, uh, which isn't much different from $10 million 10 years ago. It's a, it's a little different, but not much. Um, so, okay. So $10 million Bitcoin is a crazy prediction. This is really an upper bound of how much a Bitcoin can cost. Worst case scenario from the perspective of people worried about Bitcoin's energy consumption. Best case scenario, if you actually hold Bitcoin, then that would be, uh, that would be uh, amazing. $100 million, uh, $10 million Bitcoin, not, not $100 million. All right, so let's say this happens. And let's say it happens at the unrealistically fast pace of 10 years. In 10 years, all of the monies of the world, including gold, are put to rest, and Bitcoin is king, or crypto is king, because the other cryptocurrencies are mostly based on mining as well. Fine, but let's say Bitcoin is king. So it's the year 2030, and you have $10 million Bitcoin. You have a $10 million Bitcoin. That would mean that the world of 2030 is unrecognizable from the world of the year 2020. You wouldn't be able to you know, spend your dollars anywhere. You know, people would be like, what's that? Oh, I remember that back in the day. Um, you know, so that's, uh, that would be a pretty fast-changing world. Um, and uh, so let's say it happens. And also, by the way, there'd be some energy savings for that if you're not, you know, there's a lot of energy you know, consumption in gold, say people are mining gold because it's worth so much. People are mining silver. Uh, there's a lot of energy in the creation of the fiat currencies around the world. So all that goes away. It's a lot of energy savings too. Um, but we're going to ignore that. Uh, be as much as generous as possible to uh, the opponents here. Um, so because of all the happenings, the rewards in the year 2030 are going to be 1.56 million or no, sorry, 1.56 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. It goes down to that, which if you have a $10 million Bitcoin, it comes out to $15.6 million every 10 minutes are being rewarded to the network. So if you multiply that out, that's $9.3 million an hour. That's $225 million a day. And finally, you multiply by 365 and a quarter, can't forget that leap year, got to have a quarter. And that comes out to $82.2 billion 
per year spent on mining Bitcoin. Maximum. Now, that sounds like a lot, but that's less than the net worth of Jeff Bezos, a single individual, and it's less than 10% of Amazon's market cap. Uh, but what does this mean for energy? You know, according to Wikipedia, about 10% of the world's GDP goes to energy, at least in 2011, but uh, let's assume that doesn't change much. The world GDP today is $88 trillion, so that would be $8 trillion on, on energy. Which means, in this worst-case doomsday scenario, world energy consumption goes up by $80 billion over the $8 trillion we already have. It goes up by 1%. One measly percent. Now, you might say, Max, you know, 1% doesn't sound like a lot, but we can't afford even 1% with all the environmental problems and stuff. Well, fine. First of all, it's going to be a lot less than 1%, as I said before. Secondly, if you don't like that 1%, just wait. It gets better. Because a Bitcoin happening doesn't stop. So if we reach peak Bitcoin as early as 2030, and it's really, and I, I don't think we will, uh, and it's really increasing energy consumption, it's really uh, uh, increasing the world energy consumption by 1%, just wait until the halvening of 2032. Then it goes down to half a percent. And then by 2036, another halvening, a quarter of a percent. After a decade, it really gets tiny again, and it's tough to make a good argument to complain about it. Um, and third, as some people have pointed out, I think I got this from Andreas Antonopoulos. It was also from the article I, qu I quoted before. Bitcoin mining actually encourages some of the renewable energy sources. So I'm not an expert on the engineering and business of providing energy, but apparently it's very difficult to store energy. And you think, well, why don't they just create a huge battery or something? Uh, but I mean, it's possible, but it's just not worth the money, it turns out, unless we get some breakthrough. So if you have wind energy or solar energy, uh, if you have certain times with lots of sun or lots of wind, that excess energy just goes to waste. It can't be saved up for when there's no sun or no wind. So you can't profit off it. But if you hook up that extra energy to cryptocurrency mining machines, then that can actually offset uh, this type of energy. So it, it does actually encourage renewable energy. So there you go. As I went through the math, it totally convinced me that the sky is falling Bitcoin energy consumption will burn up the world statements are just completely without merit. And the people making them are just trying to spread th fear through uh, something that maybe sounds feasible to the average person, but, uh, you know, doesn't hold up. All right. So finally, last topic, I want to quickly get into this debate on AI that took place in Shanghai recently, Shanghai, China, between Elon Musk, you know, of Tesla fame and also the guy who wants to go to Mars and now he wants to create this Neuralink to the brain. He wants to hook up the internet to your brain. He says this like 30 times in the video. <laughs> He's really pushing it. Uh, he wants to hook up our brain to computers. And then there's Jack Ma, the richest guy in China, I believe, who co-founded and leads the Alibaba company. Uh, that's sometimes called the Amazon of China, but they are a little different. They're kind of a conglomerate that has their hands on a lot of stuff. So, and thanks, by the way, to Christian Hubs of the Artificially Intelligent podcast who brought this up in his last episode of Artificially Intelligence because that brought this debate to my attention. I think it is worth watching. So first of all, it was, it was a freaking, it was an awkward-ass conversation. I can tell you that much. There was no moderator. They were just kind of self-moderating, talking to each other, uh, but disagreeing and not really having good social cues for disagreeing. So that was pretty funny. Uh, the pro-Musk 
people in the comments section on YouTube were all saying like how much smarter he is, blah, blah, blah. But maybe so. I don't know either of them. But it was a very interesting conversation for a number of reasons. First, the personality types and the philosophical outlook of these two men, especially when it comes to artificial intelligence, AI, you know, that's as different as can be. And it doesn't really matter who's smarter because both approaches can clearly be successful. Um, secondly, these are businessmen. Their view of AI is from a very high-level view of what they've been told from talking to people. They're not necessarily in the technical weeds as much. So in some cases, and this was pointed out in the Artificially Intelligent con- uh, podcast, this same conversation could be happening in a late-night brainstorm at some computer science department by undergrads. Um, but these two guys are at the head of two very powerful and inf- influential organizations, control a lot of capital. So like it or not, what they say carries weight. In some cases, I think the differences between them were so vast and unresolvable and interesting. It's kind of like the differences between Plato and Aristotle. It's not going to be settled with one person having some ingenious argument and convincing everyone to see the world his way. And I'm not familiar enough with Plato and Aristotle. I don't know enough about uh, philosophy. But if I had to guess, Jack Ma was the more Aristotle because he was more interested in the here and now. You know, he's saying things like, you know, I don't care about Mars, Elon. I just want people to work on problems here on Earth. And he tended to be more modest in his goals. He was like, you know, I'm going to solve the problem, uh, problems I know how to solve and let other people solve different problems. And if a problem can't be solved, then let it be. And I kind of respect that. But I also respect the opposite, which Elon Musk, he was totally the opposite. He's like, we can solve all the world's problems and I'm going to do it. Um, Although, interestingly, he actually considers AI to be a big problem that we might not be able to solve, even though we don't have anything close to the AI problem that he's talking about. So let's talk about their differences on AI. Uh, The first question that came up is, can we build a smarter uh, being than ourselves? Uh, Jack Ma said, no, we can't build a smarter being than ourselves. Elon Musk says, absolutely, we can build a smarter being than ourselves. We've done it before. We're not the end of evolution. Um, But not only are we going to build something that is so much smarter than ourselves in every way, well, so much smarter than ourselves, it's going to be smarter than ourselves in every single way, and it's going to make humans obsolete, and that would be the end of consciousness. So... um, they, they, I kind of think they're both wrong. I think that Ma is wrong in the sense of, well, he's wrong in the sense of not being able to create a greater intelligence. Obviously, we, he, he does make some good points when it's like, you know, hey, a, a human designs a computer. I've never seen a computer design a human. Um, could happen in the future, but it would be more. But it, it does seem like the machines that we build are kind of subservient to what our conscious desires are. Um, so uh, it does seem like, like, it does seem like the, the building of machines are human-driven, um, and the evils of this technology are more, you know, because, are, are more human evils, not, not machines turning against us. Um, but uh, this could change in the future, although I think Elon Musk in drawing that conclusion about superintelligence, in drawing that conclusion that humans uh, are going to be surpassed in every possible way in the imminent future. First of all, he might be overestimating uh, you know, how, how fast. I, I think this technology is moving very fast, and there's a lot of things that machines will be able to do um, you know, in terms of self-driving cars, in terms of 
working on our health in terms of our education. Um, but, you know, look, all that stuff is for the benefit of humans. Um, there's a lot of things that they'll be able to do that are, you know, maybe don't fit the definition of super intelligence, but are, in, in a word, super intelligent. But I think, he, you know, he seems to have this belief that, you know, there, uh, he believes in like the singularity that something's going to happen one day, the Skynet is going to turn on and it's going to try to, you know, capture, it's going to try to destroy us all. And that's, you know, something out of science fiction. And I don't know, I mean, maybe he's right to be worried about it if there's a chance, but uh, he doesn't seem to have any uh, evidence to back this up other than, you know, being uh, alarmist in that regard. So I want to end with the fact that there are two really interesting agreements between these two guys who disagree on everything. Oh, another thing I was thinking about in terms of like their perception of the future was kind of Jetsons versus Star Trek, where Jack Ma is more like a, a Jetsons future where it's like, oh, you know, why can't a, a, a nice nuclear family afford a robot butler these days? You know, what is the world coming to? And, um, you know, Elon Musk is more Star Trek where, you know, we've solved all these problems and we've gone beyond human, uh, you know, we, we've, we've overcome the hurdles of human failings and all that. So very different. And those are two science fiction TV shows that I think most people have seen. And so that was another idea I had around that. Um, but I thought it was interesting where they agree because they actually do agree on two very important things. First of all, they both agreed that, and this is something that I agree with and something that I have spoken about on this program a lot, is that making predictions is a really important skill. And um, making predictions about the future and also, uh, you know, figuring out how to affect the future and make your predictions that way. And they agreed that that's what education should be about. And they agreed that education is not providing that these days. Um, so that was interesting. Another thing they agreed on is that population decline is a problem in the future, which is kind of interesting because I remember – you know, listening to the, I think it was the environmental debate that the Democratic uh, candidates had when you know, Bernie Sanders said, you know, uh, po- you know, overpopulation is a problem. Uh, but both of these guys said, no, underpopulation is a problem. And, you know, if we're going to have less people to, uh, it's not that we're going to have not enough jobs, we're going to have not enough people to do the jobs that we need. So that's an interesting idea. I probably can have a debate on that at some point as well. Um, so next week, um, and actually in the next couple of weeks, in two weeks from now, I'm going to talk a lot about making predictions um, in a new way, which um, you should really look out for. We actually have a two-part series coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks with Anthony Aguirre. He's a physicist and a cosmologist. And next week, I'm going to ask him about the fundamental building blocks of the universe. So if you're interested in that, definitely tune in next week. Uh, and the following week, um, we're going to have another conversation about his prediction en- engine, which is called Metaculus, and how he captured the um, the problem of how do you crowdsource to prediction to to make predictions about the future? How do you um, you know and what and, and and how do we, how do we think about the process of humans predicting the future? Which you know, as Jack Ma and Elon Musk actually agreed upon, learn how to make good predictions. Nobody can do this. 
all of the predictions given to us by our politicians and our educators over the last 20 years of this is what the next decade will look like. This is what the world will look like, blah, blah, blah. You remember hearing that in school or on TV? They're always wrong. When you grow up, you realize they're always wrong. So how can you possibly rely solely on them to make good decisions for you? So I think this is a really important topic. So remember, on The Local Maximum, next week, the universe, and the week after that, the future. That's what you get from The Local Maximum. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.